This is Intersection, I'm Matthew Petty. Legislation that would ban discussion of sexual orientation and gender identity in primary schools is raising the alarm with LGBTQ plus advocates. David Johns is with the National Black Justice Coalition. and He says the bill could have a big impact on LGBTQ plus students of colour. Well, David Johns, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for having me and for holding space for this important conversation. Talk to me, if you could, about some of the challenges that already face LGBTQ plus students of colour. Uh, yes, and before we do that, let me offer uh, a footnote uh, to uh, contextualize uh, this conversation, which is that uh, we are now talking about social politically constructed categories, right? Like gay is a, a term that is used um, often to frame political agendas because of the way in which it is used in the media. It invokes often images of gay white men first and foremost, and then maybe white, lesbian women thereafter. Um, And for those reasons, I don't use the term gay. I use the term same gender loving. Hmm. Uh, And I'm an adult. Uh, I will be uh, uh, celebrating my 40th birthday in a matter of weeks. Uh, And I say that because there are adults who don't use the terms LGBTQIA plus for lots of reasons. And in this moment where we're having a conversation about children, who are learning and developing and growing and are being uh, um, hopefully supported in learning about and understanding these terms and what they have come to mean to the world and what they might mean to them. We are compounding the problems that adults have created onto children who are simply trying to figure it out. Mm-hmm. And so before we even talk about the implications of the bills in Florida, right now in public schools throughout the country, children who identify as LGBTQIA+, and more often the case, kids who are assumed to be queer or trans or non-binary do not have the same protections as their non-LGBTQIA peers. What we know based on data produced in part uh, through partnership with our colleagues at GLSEN, uh, is that students uh, identify schools as exceptionally hostile uh, and unsafe and unwelcoming spaces. We also know from data from our colleagues at the Trevor Project that LGBTQIA children face additional mental health stress and trauma. And so as it relates to your question and the uh, invitation for NBJC to have this conversation, uh, it's important to Uh, name that the challenges I described, uh, hopefully carefully, around LGBTQIA plus identities also exist in different and equally powerful ways for those of us who are members of racial and ethnic minority groups, those of us who are Black. Mm -hmm. And so when we think about the compounded nature of um, trauma and uh, marginalization, students who are both Black and who identify as or who are assumed to be LGBTQIA plus right now face extreme challenges that often go um, ignored uh, and and unresponded to. On top of that, now you have uh, state legislatures, more specifically Florida, introducing bills that are attempting to not only prevent us from being able to have conversations where we name people and identities and experiences that have always existed, that existed even before the terms that we now use were employed, but also to criminalize Uh, educators and others who are attempting to uh, speak truth to power um, and to ensure that all students who are compelled, who are forced to go to school by law, uh, feel seen and safe and supported 
as they do what we expect them to do so that they can at some point engage in the 21st century global labor force. Mm -hmm. Sponsors of the bill in Florida argue that it's designed to make sure, for one thing, that parents aren't excluded from discussion about their children's sexual orientation or gender identity. What do you say to that? Uh, Prove it. (laughs) Uh, Prove it. It sounds like a a convenient talking point. Uh, But as an educator uh, who is reading a bill that was drafted by uh, men, mostly cis, white, uh, able-bodied men uh, who are not educators, wants them to actually prove it. Uh, And they can prove it by not rushing a bill uh, that forces um, on school districts a policy that denies them from the opportunity to figure it out and to figure it out with parents at the table, right? And so one way to prove it is what uh, Leon County, a school district in Florida, uh, is doing at present, including by establishing a task force. Uh, And on that task force, there are parents who have opposing views about this topic and related topics, but it allows for there to be a process by which educators uh, and and other caring and uh, compassionate and competent adults, again, who have differing perspectives, can figure it out in ways that are student-centered and, again, that allow for all students to feel and be safe and supported in the schools that we force them to go to. So why would a school be keeping that kind of information back from parents? Why would a school keep what information back from parents? Well, for example, a discussion around sexual orientation or gender identity, like if you could just explain, like, what's the flip side of the argument, I suppose, to why would a school be necessarily keeping that information from parents? Yeah. um, So I taught kindergarten and third grade in New York. And what I know is two things that are important to this conversation. One, children at extremely young ages or early ages are doing the work of making sense of the world around them. Uh, And they do so by taking in and absorbing information and cues from everything from the literature that they're exposed to, the things that they see on TV or in the world, the language that they have access to. Uh, And a part of that is that we expose children to the heterosexual agenda. Uh, The heterosexual agenda shows up in songs that we sing about uh, unrequited love between a male and female, uh, uh, perhaps teenage uh, starstruck couple. It shows up in the books, including Romeo and Juliet, that students are often um, assigned to read or otherwise expected to read. Uh, It shows up in the modeling uh, that we see. Um, not only in uh, some read traditional uh, families, but also on our TVs. And so we shouldn't lie to ourselves about the reality that our children are exposed to identities and experiences. The questions, is, the question that should follow is whose experiences are privileged, whose experiences are normalized, and when those things happen, whose experiences are erased, and what are the consequences of that erasure? Again. LGBTQIA plus students, students who might identify while they are young, who may identify when they are older, and who might not for that matter, right? Because a lot of this is based on assumptions that adults, educators in this context are making. A lot of students might work through issues connected to their identity without the proper support, right? I'm underscoring the point that it's going to happen. We should do it in spaces where our babies can be supported, The converse of what's happening in Florida, where there's a rushed effort to 
um, uh, criminalize people who want to have conversations that acknowledge the beautiful diversity that has always existed is that we're not allowing for students and parents and families and communities of caring and concerned adults to figure this out again in ways that are student-centered. So if this bill is actually approved and signed into law, what what do you think the effect is going to be on LGBTQIA plus identifying students and their families? Three things come to mind, and this response is informed by data that I'm collecting. I'm a PhD student at Columbia University studying the experiences of Black and Latinx LGBTQIA plus students in middle and high schools throughout the country. Um, And and what I uh, know is that one of the results will be that students will stop showing up at schools. Um, Students who feel unsafe as a result of um, there being laws that criminalize people uh, talking about them, uh, using the pronouns that make them feel comfortable um, and that are assigned with how they show up in the world um, and providing opportunities for them to be seen and affirmed in the curriculum uh, and as a member of the school community, they'll simply not show up. Uh, they'll drop out, they'll disengage, and most likely if they are a student who has a disability and or a student who is Black and Latinx will be pulled into the school to prison or pulled into the prison pipeline, pulled out of school and pulled into the school to prison pipeline. Um, the second thing that we can expect is increases in the number of students who report experiencing mental health trauma. Um, what we know is that over the last two decades, suicide rates for Black youth, not Black youth who are LGBTQIA+, but Black youth generally have doubled. We can extrapolate using data from uh, the Trevor Project, which suggests that if you are Black and LGBTQIA+, um, then the rates are compounded. The problem there is that we don't collect intersectional data, uh, but we can expect for more of our babies uh, to deal with suicidality, um, to think about uh, ideate around suicide um, and to attempt it and um, sadly possibly to complete it um, and to otherwise suffer from mental health trauma. The last thing that we can expect in this regard is that schools that are already unwelcoming and unsafe spaces per the reports of students will become even more uh, unsafe and unwelcoming. And so there might be increases in uh, reported incidents of violence um, that also show up uh, in the data of students dropping out. I just want to come back to something in the bill and and a comment from uh, some of the, the, sponsor, the sponsors of the bill around the discussion of sexual orientation and gender identity. Sponsors of this bill say less formal discussions of those issues, for example, at a school club, would still be allowed. I mean, is there any kind of reassurance in, in that? No, quite the opposite. Uh, what I have found in my research um, is two things. One, um, there's another researcher by the name of Lance T. McCready um, who studies uh, schools and the experiences of LGBTQ youth in them. Uh, and what he has found in my research uh, also affirms this is that students who have intersectional or multiple, multiply marginalized identities are often forced to then choose, uh, do I go to the GSA, which would be the, the group that is often uh, used in this example, or do I go to the space that is designated for Black students or for um, students from the who have families from throughout the diaspora. Sorry, just just to clarify for our listeners, when you say GSA, you're referring to Gay Straight Alliance? I'm sorry, that is correct. Yes, I appreciate you reminding me. I live in Washington, D.C., Alphabet Soup. GSA, Gay Straight Alliance, yes, they are often separate programs that are designed for uh, students who identify as LGBTQIA+, and their allies. 
Um, um, but again, when I recall the data conversations that I've had with students recently, um, two challenges are often presented. The things that then happen at GSAs um, are often not translated into the larger school space, right? And so while students might feel more comfortable having conversations about their experiences are not having to worry about experiencing violence in that very safe space, they're still forced to be a member of that much larger community. Uh, and so it's really important for us to do the kinds of things that we would expect to happen in a GSA in a whole school environment so that all students have the benefit of that knowledge and hopefully the resources um, that come with it. Mm-hmm. So I guess the this piece of legislation we're discussing right now is up in there at the moment. It hasn't become law yet. In the meantime, what's your advice to LGBTQIA plus youth of color and to teachers as well, for that matter. So first, I want, I'll start at the back and then work my way forward. Um, educators do God's work. Uh, and I know, having uh, been in the classroom, I still teach now. I'm a professor at American University uh, and I'm a researcher. Good educators are culturally competent and a part of being culturally competent is acknowledging that our babies have beautifully diverse experiences and ways of naming parts of their Um, identities and how they show up in the world. And it's our job to support them uh, in ways that um, make the most sense for them not to live through them or to otherwise prevent them from being exactly who they were purposed to be. Uh, And my advice to any educator who uh, finds that difficult is to honor that you have a lot of choice and agency in this and consider choosing another profession. Our children don't have an option. They're forced to go to school. Um, I would encourage you to consider um, opting out and going uh, someplace else. To students more generally, I want to just name that it is an incredibly difficult time to be a young person in this country. Um, This is in part why I'm confounded um, around why um, politicians are not concerned with solving actual problems rather than creating them. Uh, But with regard to students, we could be addressing uh, keeping schools open and safe the loss of learning that we've experienced as a result of the uh, pandemic on top of other crises that existed, including anti-Blackness. We could be talking about and responding to mental health, including in the ways that we've discussed uh, in the time that we've been having this conversation. Um, Instead, children are being attacked. And to that, I want to say two things. For students who are not LGBTQIA+, um, I hope that you understand the importance of being an active accomplice and ensuring that all of your peers have the opportunity to thrive, right? Um, I think often about the fact that like children don't have to be born and they shouldn't be burdened with the problems that adults have created. Um, and students who don't yet understand the, uh, the weight of oppression or the sting of discrimination. Uh, my hope is that this is an opportunity for you to shift uh, and to find ways to celebrate um, diversity Um, and to learn more about ways to be an active accomplice and ensuring that everybody can be free. To students who are LGBTQIA+, who might be, uh, who are contemplating it, uh, and who identify in that regard, um, and who are Black and LGBTQIA+, um, more specifically, or who otherwise have intersectional identities, I hope you hear my heart when I say that there are people like myself and organizations like the National Black Justice Coalition that are fighting to ensure that you don't have to do additional work um, to show up in spaces where you're required to already take risks uh, to learn, right? To, to, to demonstrate what you know, what you're excited about, um, and, and what you've learned. Um, that requires enough in and of itself. Um, th- there are many of us who understand the importance of engaging in this fight. My hope is that while 
we are engaged in this fight, um, acknowledging that, that this is not new uh, and, and it's not going to end tomorrow. My hope is that you do everything to guard your joy, um, that if things don't feel right, um, uh, mentally, physically, emotionally, you find someone to talk to. Um, MBJC has a partnership we're launching February 15th with the Boris Lawrence Henson Foundation. Um, for anyone who needs access to a competent mental health provider, um, uh, send me a note um, at nbjc.org and we'll make that connection. Uh, but I want to ensure that, that, that the, I call them babies. I, I'm a teacher. I, they're 18 now and I still call them babies. Um, but our babies have all of the support they need in order to thrive. David Johns is the executive director of the National Black Justice Coalition. David, thanks so much for your time. Appreciate it. My pleasure. Thank you. Still to come, how a $1.1 billion infusion for the Florida Everglades could help protect the state's ailing manatees. This is Intersection. I'm Matthew Petty. The federal government is pumping an unprecedented $1.1 billion into funding Everglades restoration this year. Environmental advocates say it could help the state's struggling manatee population. To explain how... Here's WMFE environmental reporter Amy Green. Thanks for joining me. You're welcome. Amy, let's just go back to the last time we spoke on this program and we talked about the staggering die-off of Florida's manatees and the efforts to stop them starving to death. How are they doing now? Right, so this continues to be a very concerning story. Uh, Wildlife agencies said this week that they expect a new effort to provide Supplemental lettuce for starving manatees in the Indian River Lagoon will be a long-term one. And they say that's because the water quality problems and seagrass losses that have led to um, this unprecedented die-off in Florida of manatees, especially in the Indian River Lagoon, the the problems that have led to this die-off will not be resolved anytime soon. And so the wildlife agencies say hundreds of manatees are gathering at a Cape Canaveral power plant where the agencies are providing thousands of pounds of lettuce daily um, for manatees um, that are not able to find enough seagrass to eat in the Indian River Lagoon and manatees that also have been experiencing cold stress uh, during the recent cooler weather. Are they actually eating the lettuce? Because that was a question mark over this whole supplemental feeding issue from the get-go, right? They weren't quite sure if the manatees would go for it. Right. The wildlife agencies say they have never done anything like this before. This is an unprecedented effort in response to very dire circumstances that the manatees are facing. Initially, the manatees were, you know, not really eating the lettuce, but as the weather has cooled off more recently, they've been eating quite a bit of it. How does the Indian River Lagoon look right now? Is it looking okay? Is it a bit murky? What's the water quality like at this point in time? Well, the primary problems that are troubling manatees are uh, water quality problems, especially harmful algae blooms that can cloud the Indian River Lagoon's historically crystal clear water and prevent sunlight from penetrating into the water and reaching the seagrass beneath the surface. And as that seagrass dies off, you know, it leaves manatees with not enough food to eat. And the dead seagrass also can contribute further to the nutrients that are feeding these harmful algae blooms, leading to this terrible cycle in the Indian River Lagoon. Amy, your latest reporting with Inside Climate News focuses on the federal funding for the Everglades. And uh, we mentioned at the top of this interview that it's, it's a lot of money, right? 
how much is it and where is it going to go? Right, so the Biden administration says um, that as part of the infrastructure measure uh, that the president signed into law in November, uh, $1.1 billion in new federal funding will be going to Everglades restoration. And the money is aimed at revitalizing the Florida Everglades, which is a treasured and troubled watershed in the state of Florida, responsible for the drinking water of more than 8 million Floridians. The money also is intended to fortify the watershed against the rising seas and other impacts of climate change. And the reason we're talking about this in the context of manatees is because one of the projects included in the funding is one that is aimed at improving water quality in the Indian River Lagoon. And this has been a big issue in Florida as we've seen large discharges of water flow from Lake Okeechobee, which is considered the watery heart of the Everglades, and those discharges flow to coastal estuaries like the Indian River Lagoon, where they can cause a lot of problems. Again, nutrient pollution that nourishes these harmful algae blooms, and some of the blooms have been toxic. And so one of the projects included in this funding involves a reservoir that is aimed at improving the flow of water from Lake Okeechobee to the Indian River Lagoon. Right, because people might be listening to this and thinking, what does the Everglades have to do with the Indian River Lagoon? But it's all connected, right? It's all part of this big interconnected system. And if one part of it is suffering, then the rest of it will be suffering too. So what about other efforts to fix water quality problems? That's fertilizer runoff, uh, septic tank runoff has been an issue too. Are some of these things being addressed by federal funding or, or by Florida lawmakers? Right. So Everglades Restoration is a federal and state, it's a joint federal and state effort. And water quality primarily is the responsibility of the state. Um, But the new federal money will support some of those water quality projects too. We mentioned the project in the Indian River Lagoon. Another project is designed to manage polluted water that flows from western Broward County and the water eventually ends up in Everglades National Park. And there's another project that's designed to improve water flows into Biscayne Bay. And again, you know, you mentioned everything is connected when we're talking about the Everglades. It's just a massive watershed that begins in central Florida with the Kissimmee River and involves Lake Okeechobee and the wetlands to the south. And water flows from the Kissimmee River, from Lake Okeechobee, across the southern half of the peninsula, again to the Indian River Lagoon and coastal estuaries on the west coast as well. Just back to the money too, I mean $1.1 billion is a staggering amount, but overall there's a lot of money that, that is earmarked for Everglades restoration. So how does that $1.1 billion fit into the overall effort to restore the Everglades? Right, so Everglades advocates who I talked to told me that it's a, you know, it's a significant boost for Everglades restoration. It's the, the Biden administration says it's the single largest investment in Everglades restoration in history. Um, but Everglades advocates point out that the total cost of Everglades restoration is $23 billion. And so while, while it's a big boost, um, there's still a lot more work to do. And a long way to go too. And you covered a lot of this in your podcast series Drained and also in in the book you wrote about Mary Barley and her efforts to restore the Everglades. 
and the cost and the sort of timeline has been pushed out over the years, hasn't it? Absolutely. You know, when Everglades Restoration was first signed into law in 2000, it was expected to cost uh, some $7 billion or $8 billion, and it was expected to be complete in about 30 years. The people who were involved in the effort at this point, the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers and South Florida Water Management District, now expect the effort to last much longer than that, many, many more decades And again, the total cost is projected to be $23 billion. Certainly, Everglades advocates are celebrating this $1 billion allocation of funding for Everglades restoration. But as one Everglades advocate told me, Eve Samples of Friends of the Everglades, you know, she characterized the effort really as a multi-generational one. She pointed out that her own 13-year-old son would be a grown man before a lot of these infrastructure projects will reach completion. It sounds from your reporting that they're happy with the money, they're happy with the progress of these projects, but it is such a very long time to try and turn around some of the damage which goes back decades and and restore this watershed. Governor DeSantis too, you know, you've done a lot of reporting over the last two plus years about the governor's approach to the Everglades, how it fits into his election platform and his overall environmental policy. He's talked a lot about the funding that he's channeling into Everglades Restoration. So how does that fit into the comprehensive Everglades Restoration Plan? And, and how does the this new infusion of federal money sort of fit with what the governor is doing as well? Right. So Governor Ron DeSantis certainly has made Everglades Restoration a priority of his administration. He's put millions of dollars um, toward Everglades Restoration and really you know, it's it's kind of a new and exciting time in Everglades restoration, um, you know, with new state funding and new federal funding. We're seeing projects reach completion, projects like a restoration of the Kissimmee River, which reached completion last year. We also saw the completion of a separate project down in the Lake Okeechobee Indian River Lagoon area that, again, is intended to improve water quality in the Indian River Lagoon. And so, right, DeSantis has put millions of dollars toward Everglades restoration, and the project that he has put the most support behind is one south of Lake Okeechobee. It's a large reservoir in the Everglades agricultural area, and it's intended to address those large discharges of water that we see from Lake Okeechobee to those fragile coastal estuaries like the Indian River Lagoon. And this has been perhaps the primary Everglades restoration plan that Governor Ron DeSantis has championed since he's been in office. And kind of conspicuously, the project was left out of the funding that the Biden administration has put toward Everglades restoration as part of the infrastructure measure. And so a lot of the Republican leadership in the state, including DeSantis, this has provoked an outcry among these Republican leaders and Congressman Brian Mast went as far as to describe the omission as a middle finger uh, from the Biden administration to the state of Florida. It's probably important to point out here that DeSantis is widely seen as a potential presidential candidate in 2024. Certainly that EAA reservoir is crucial in restoring the Everglades historic flow south and addressing those harmful discharges east and west, the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers says that it remains committed to the project. 
and work already is underway. Back to the Manatees, which we started this conversation with, Amy, what's the outlook for them this year? It remains concerning. You know, again, the water quality problems and the seagrass losses that are really causing this die-off of manatees, especially in the Indian River Lagoon, will not be resolved anytime soon. These restoration projects will be helpful in improving some of those water quality problems. But the wildlife agencies, that's a situation that everyone is watching very closely. It's obviously horrific. It really is one of the most horrific examples of the very complex and difficult habitat or environmental problems that we're seeing in a watershed like the Indian River Lagoon, which is one of the most important habitats in the world for manatees. You mentioned Eve Samples before as one of the people you talked to in this, your most recent reporting on the issue. You talked to a number of environmental advocates How are they feeling in general about the Everglades and Florida's efforts to restore the waterways in general? Yeah, I asked them, you know, what is the mood among Everglades advocates when it comes to this unprecedented level of funding for the Everglades? And I would say they recognize the funding as significant, but also it is one step in a long road for Everglades restoration. Amy Green is WMFE's environmental reporter. We've been talking about the latest in Everglades restoration and uh, manatee rescue and recovery as well in that Indian River Lagoon. Amy, thanks so much for your reporting and thanks for your time. It's a pleasure. Up next, Valentine's Day is coming up and WMFE's Joe Burns talks with two relationship and counselling experts about the secrets of enduring relationships. That's when we return. This is Intersection, I'm Matthew Petty. With Valentine's Day around the corner, WMFE's senior issues reporter Joe Burns sat down to talk about romance with two University of Central Florida experts on counselling and relationships. John Super and Sajal Barden say there are plenty of tips young people can learn from senior citizens with enduring relationships. And whether you're a senior in high school or a senior citizen, the key is finding ways to connect and to understand each other. I'm joined today by two UCF experts on marriage and relationships. John Super teaches counseling, and Sajel Barden is executive director of the Marriage and Family Research Institute. Valentine's Day is approaching, so it's time to talk about romance. And I want to talk with you guys about romances that last. The experience, the love stories that many senior citizens in Florida live every day. John, are there things that these long-running romantic couples are doing right to keep these relationships working and connected? Yes, absolutely. You know, there's a lot of research out there uh, that suggests that there are master couples, couples that have certain elements to them that make their relationships successful. And there's plenty of books that you can read out there in self-help, but they generally boil down to the elements of um, the partners seeing each other, hearing each other, and knowing each other. So at the base of it, being seen, being heard, and being known Uh, And then communicating around that, and that often helps develop those three elements. And we see that across the lifespan. So it doesn't really matter if you are a senior in high school or a senior citizen, finding ways to really connect with each other and to understand each other. So being seen, what does that mean? 
Um, being seen oftentimes is more really understanding who the person is. Um, being seen for who they are um, as opposed to maybe what they represent. We're living in a time where social media, we project uh, an image to the world that may or may not be the most accurate one or may be projecting our best selves. Um, but the reality is we have our best self and then sometimes we have our genuine self. And being seen is being known, um, seeing that genuine self and also accepting and understanding that genuine self. So being heard, that's, is that about listening to your partner? It is uh, definitely about listening, but I would suggest that we take it a step further beyond just listening. Um, it is one thing to hear, I'm going to the grocery store, um, but it is one thing even more important to understand that, that uh, the words that you hear about, I'm going to the grocery store, actually means I, I'm taking care of our family. You know, I'm taking care of you. I'm buying the food that we're going to have wonderful meals around. Um, so while we can hear the words, really understanding what those words are saying sometimes can be even more important. And the knowing, I imagine that, that for seniors, there's just years and years of understanding the other person. It can be a real rich knowledge of your partner. Absolutely. And that can also be a positive and a negative. Um, a positive in understanding your partner so fully and a negative is that you understand them so fully uh, you no longer commit to the communication and the work. And I was listening to Dr. Barton's podcast yesterday, which was amazing. And she reminded me that all relationships require a certain amount of level of work and commitment and being able to engage in that process actively then leads to this being seen, heard, and known. I want to uh, talk to Sejal about young lovers and what they can learn from those enduring relationships of senior citizens? What are the tips that they might pick up for a successful romance? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, you know, I think sometimes when we're younger in our relationships or really in our life, we might look to our older adults and say, wow, you have 10 years or 50 years married and um, maybe even make some assumptions of how they got there. I think one thing I would really encourage young lovers to do is ask a couple that they look up to that's a role model and say, tell me about the struggles that you have gone through and how did you overcome those? I think what they would find that's center to that conversation is that all relationships have trials and tribulations. What we see on the media or in movies of these, you know, storybook romances when we're a little bit younger truly don't really exist. But what really happens is that our older couples or more senior couples have made this commitment to saying we are we are committed to each other and we're willing to put in the work and the effort. And often that looks like how do we use conflict as a catalyst to say things aren't working as they're intended to? Can we take a step back, learn what we need from each other for this next chapter of our life um, and, and move forward? You know, when some a couple that's been married for 50 years you know, I like to say likely they've been married, they've been remarried maybe seven times just to the same person because they really have had to continue to evolve and learn and adapt to what their partner's needs are. And that's especially true as we go through the trajectory of aging and relationships together. So if a, if a young couple, a young woman or a young man who's just getting into a relationship wants to understand how to make that work, it might make sense to sit down with that aunt and uncle or with the grandparents and talk to them about how they made it work. 
Absolutely. Knowing that every couple's story is unique, but maybe focusing on the foundation of what makes these relationships work. And I think the foundation is friendship. So truly finding ways to connect, to have fun together, to be playful. And that evolves, of course, over time. Maybe when you're younger, that looks like more going out to restaurants and the social scene. And maybe, you know, as you transition, that's doing stuff as you're having a family. And then as you're older, really identifying like, what are what is our new sense of adventure and what does that look like? Um, and I think communication, you know, all... All couples struggle with communication. All couples talk about communication. But as a younger couple looking to say, I would really like to have a healthy, romantic, sustainable relationship, um, really learning the skill and the art of communication. It's not something that we grow up knowing how to do necessarily. And um, it is a skill that's teachable. It's something that if we put in effort, we can absolutely improve in that over time. John, I was just talking with a couple recently uh, about what made their 49-year relationship work. And they talked about shared values, about friendship, about compatibility. But we hear that opposites attract. How important is compatibility and shared values and friendship for a romantic relationship? You know, we do. We like to glamorize that opposites attract, and sometimes that is absolutely true. Um, but I would suspect when you're talking to that couple that they explained a little bit more about over those 49 years, they became more alike. They developed those shared values. And while you may start off at two opposite extremes, and remembering the human experience is very complex, we may be opposites on one um, capacity, but we might very much align on those core values. And that's where we really find it. Um, with couples who are more aligned on their core values, and they may be opposite in other ways, but those core values are similar, whether it be about finance, um, children, sex, whatever it is, that they're very similarly aligned, that they've got a more harmonious relationship. And then as they continue to grow, and I love what Sajel just mentioned too about we um, oftentimes think of a relationship being very linear or either good or bad, happy or not. Um, but the reality is relationships are dynamic also. They cycle through good times and bad times. And I love being able to choose those role models, those people that you can identify with, that you actually know, that you can have conversations with, to hear about what was successful to them. Because we learn by the world around us. And so being able to integrate all of those different pieces into it, whether you're opposites or very much alike, um, can be either one can be successful. It's really about how you start living together that's the most important piece. Of course, Sajel. There is a single scene among Florida seniors. What can you say about the unique challenges that they have? And, and in general, are they going into these relationships with different expectations than, say, when they were much younger? I think dating and being single is a challenge that really crosses all demographic age groups. And I think seniors um, may find that they have some extra challenges there, and mainly because the expectations not only come from self, but they also come from family and societal expectations on um, should you should you fall in love at the age of 70? Can you fall in love? Can you still be intimate? And, you know, what does that look like? And what is what are our grown children going to say about these um, new relationships? And so I 
I can't minimize that, you know, seniors do have extra, you know, some extra challenges when they're um, seeking relationships. It's harder and harder in this day and age to meet people through friendships and so social circles, because as, as we've worked longer hours and we've, you know, kind of moved a lot of our life into online connection, um, that, that, that has some, some challenges and, and COVID really has exacerbated a lot of those those challenges. You know, so if it's okay, Joe, I'd just like to build on that a little bit. Um, you know, I'm really appreciating the analogy that you're building between um, the younger couples and the older couples, because there's a lot of similarities in many ways. Um, those couples who haven't settled into their professional identity yet probably have more time, more flexibility, are willing to engage a little bit more than those who are just um, diggly keeping up with what needs to be done. Um, but when we start thinking about some of the older couples, they've got um, added medical uh, things that they need to think about. Um, additionally, you know, when we think about the younger couples, life looks very different when they're living at their parents' home versus when they're living at college. And when we look at the elderly population, that looks very much true for them if they're living independently or living in a senior community, whether it be assisted living or more independent style living. And so while they're very different groups, there are some very similar influences. So when we start to think about the aging process, yes, we know that during the pandemic, we all connected with technology and there are a lot of numbers that are supporting um, that we are using dating apps and we are connecting with people like we never did before a lockdown. That being said, with the aging population, sometimes they struggle a little bit more with technology. And so they're becoming more creative about ways to get together uh, and being able to develop relationships as opposed to swiping right and swiping left, although that still happens too. How does growing older change and challenge people's relationships, their committed relationships, their romance. Young parents are challenged by bad sleep schedules and learning to be parents. And then um, empty nesters are learning how to, to connect with each other again. Um, but those are, who are older, it's continuing to evolve their relationship. Uh, we understand that as the body ages, more medical conditions start to develop. And so that may look a little bit different, um, starting to look at maybe being less sexually active, but finding intimacy in better ways. Uh, and then if there are memory issues that are starting to occur, that can be very difficult. When we're thinking about memory issues, especially those who are living in assisted living, um, we've seen these stories that are developing about relationships developing in the assisted living, um, even though that person is partnered with somebody else. And now we're starting to integrate the feelings of being betrayed um, with uh, integrating the family into it. And yet um, they're very beautiful, loving relationships. So when we think about the medical development over the lifespan, we've got more problems that develop as the body ages, um, but the elements of relationships remain the same regardless of the age. I think I would add, um, I think one of the, one of the strengths and um, like positive changes that happens as we um, either create or are working on sustaining relationships as we age is that we really feel more comfortable and confident with who we are as a person. So we have a deeper understanding of these are my strengths. These are my growth areas. This is just something that I'm not that great at. Um, and, and that gives us 
sometimes that causes more conflict in, in relationships because we're not as open to maybe making some changes. But more, more than that, I think it really kind of gives us a sense of this is who I am um, and this is what I bring to the table and this is what I can offer you. Um, and that really can be a, a positive to either when we're kind of creating new relationships. So for looking for new partners, um, having that kind of clarity of values and, and who we are, or also um, as we consider sustaining relationships and really building on what are our relational strengths? Um, how do we both really complement each other in this relationship as we continue to grow older um, and potentially wiser? John, a lot of 20-somethings in love, you know, they're about to start a family. But senior citizens uh, who start a relationship are often like combining families that are two or three generations deep already. What kind of complications does that create? Yeah, that's a great thing to think about for seniors starting relationships. They're generally having children of their own, so they're involved in their own family, and now they're bringing in a new partner who probably has their own family. And like every relationship, can have conflicts. Um, As a parent, you're oftentimes having a very close relationship with your children, and yet when it comes to your relationship with a new person, recognizing there are some loyalties that exist uh, from children being able to connect with somebody else that's coming into your life and being sensitive to that and also having conversations about what it looks like to bring that person into your life. And I think I would add that the, the communication is so important. Um, I think oftentimes when we think of blended families, they may start out with some element of secrecy out of I'm not sure how you're going to feel about this. So I might go on some dates or have some conversations and not share this with you, even though typically this is information that I would share. And so that kind of starts to create a foundation of um, mistrust. And so I would encourage um, people as they're engaging in relationships and and blended families to, to really just open the doors for communication and say, hey, I met a really neat person and I'm excited to share um, this person with you or have you meet them and see what you think. Um, and really kind of starting starting the relationship with the openness that the family may be used to, to help with that. I love that because if we think about fabric or the fabric of relationships, that's the thread that goes through all of it, isn't it, Sajel? The, the element of communication, regardless of what the relationship is, being able to talk to each other about those things that may not be comfortable to talk about. Absolutely. I wanted to talk a little bit about the pandemic. I want to acknowledge that many senior citizens lost the love of their life during COVID-19, and many couples of all ages endured tremendous hardship. But I wanted to kind of ask you guys about the um, stresses that the pandemic put on marriages and relationships and how people have dealt with that. I I, I think the the toll and the trauma and the grief and loss of COVID is so immense that it's hard to even put it to words how that has impacted relationships. Um, I think of our senior population and how, how yes, they lost their loved ones. And they also in the era where everyone was finding creative ways to connect over technology also felt really left out um, of a lot of those kind of nuanced and innovative connections because of their lack of familiarity or comfort comfort with technology. You know, I think there's so many stories, many that I know personally that 
days, weeks, months, years went by without getting to visit with grandchildren and, and loved ones. And so what we know is that isolation is so directly related to our mental health and our de- feelings of depression and meaning making and, and worthiness. And, and so, you know, the, the, the toll of COVID in that way really, really exacerbated feelings of isolation, um, for, for many relationships. Um, I think of younger relationships and the role reversals and many of the different hats, um, that, you know, younger couples were trying to juggle of homeschooling, you know, myself, I have four young boys at home and trying to figure out how to have two careers, dual careers and juggle homeschooling and keep up with the activities and also all of the isolation and, um, and the fear of if, if, is this the right decision or is this the wrong decision? And, um, you know, navigating so many conversations that we never thought we would have to. I do think that because of uh, the, co- the pandemic, that it has forced us to reconsider what's really important to us. How do we make time for what we value? How do we slow down life enough to know that it is so truly so short and to, and to ultimately um, put in the effort and time into our relationships because, you know, ultimately that's what means the most to us. And so the lessons learned from COVID, I think, are, are beginning to emerge and likely there's many, many stories to be told yet. Yeah, I think that's a great perspective. We recognize that with the elderly population, especially those who are living in assisted living, many times they were separated during COVID because of isolation and things like that. Um, and we see in younger couples that the rates of intimate partner violence and infidelity increased during the pandemic. Um, but when we start looking at some of the older populations with the isolation they experienced, it's also a great opportunity to engage with their family, with their children, with their grandchildren um, in ways that, that sustain their relationships. I feel that some seniors have learned new ways of communicating with their family members that uh, are far away that they may not even uh, that aware of before. Uh, absolutely. I think, you know, if there, if there could be, I wouldn't call it a silver lining, but, you know, some positive t- lessons learned. Older adults experience isolation regardless of the pandemic. Distance, you know, time and distance away from loved ones. And they, have, they were forced to find new ways to connect. And some of those new ways to connect have really been sustainable and improved our, um, our connection that, that will long last the time of the pandemic, for sure. WMFE's Joe Burns with that conversation. Support for Intersection comes from Advent Health and from our listeners. Editorial guidance from Latoya Dennis. Intersection's intern is Allegra Montesano. Subscribe to the podcast and find archived episodes on our website, wmfe.org slash intersection. I'm Matthew Petty. Thanks for listening.